Tonight we're answering the question, does God exist, right? And it's pretty much the direction we've been headed this entire time. This is kind of that, that mountain peak for us of this whole series. And that doesn't mean that everything from here is downhill, but it just means that we've been progressing towards this big elephant in the room question, does God exist? The way we asked it last week, the way we looked at it last week is this idea of who caused or what caused the beginning. Who is the uncaused first cause? In fact, I'm going to ask for a little bit of engagement here tonight as we get going. Does anybody remember from last week we covered the cosmological argument for the existence of God? Does anybody remember what the cosmological argument is? Does anybody remember what the cosmological argument has to do with? A finite universe? Yeah, that's definitely a huge part of it. And because the universe is finite, that implies that the universe had a beginning, right? That's what, we're, what we were after, right, with the cosmological argument. The cosmological argument says that everything that had a beginning has a cause, right? And then the cosmological argument looked at the, the evidence that's out there and said that the universe, what, had a beginning, which demands that the universe had a cause, right? And now we're to that point of saying, okay, so what is that? What is the uncaused first cause? Does God exist? Anybody want to take a stab at answering that question? Yeah. Yes. Okay. How do you know? Okay. But what if I say I don't agree with that? Okay. okay. <laughs> All right. Well, that's fine. That's fine for you. You go hang out with somebody who agrees with you because I don't. Does God exist? And we all say yes. And, and we say yes because we've grown up in the church. And I know not all of you have, but a lot of you have. You're in the church right now and you would say, and maybe not everybody in the room would say, yes, God exists. Maybe some of you are out there going, well, I don't, I don't know that he exists, or, or maybe he doesn't exist. And I hope that tonight can, can help answer some questions. But here's the deal. We would, most of us in the room would, would answer that question, yes, I believe that God exists, because we would come back to saying, because the what? Because the Bible tells me so. Because the Bible tells me so. And what we're going to find in the next few weeks is that that's not necessarily a, a bad answer. Okay, we can trust this book. This book is the ultimate standard of what is right, what is true. It's, it's the most clear revelation of who God is that we possess. More than feelings, emotions, everything else. It's, it's what's in this book right here. And we're going to look more at that in depth in the next few weeks. But right now we're dealing with this question, does God exist? And, and before we even get to the God of the Bible and does the God of the Bible exist, we're just talking about, is there an uncaused first cause that is a personal intelligent creator. Does that God exist? Well, tonight we're going to look at three arguments to help us make a defense for answering that question. Yes. Yes, I believe that God does exist. Last week, if you recall right at the very end, and, and you might not, and that's fine, but Last week at the very end, we talked about in order for the creator to create the universe that does exist, that the creator has to be immaterial, right? That, that if, if matter is not eternal, and we, we established that last week, that matter is not eternal, it's, it's, it all had a beginning. We can trace the, the expansion of the universe all the way back, not to even a single pinhead, but to nothingness. So all matter had a beginning. So that means the God who created everything has to be immaterial, okay? He also has to be self-existent. Because if there was nothing there that was there, then he had to already exist on, of his own accord. He's self-existent. He did not have a beginning or a cause himself. 
Third, we said that he has to be powerful. If this God of all creation is creating out of nothing, we would say, wow, that's, that's pretty amazing. That's pretty powerful. In fact, that's so powerful that no power on earth has ever been able to replicate that. Nobody has ever been able to create something out of nothing. And we also looked finally that that God has to be personal. That he created us as personal beings. That we have emotions, we have feelings, we have intelligence, we are able to interact, we are able to conceive of things. And so the God that created us must be himself personal as well. But who is that God and how can we prove that yes, God exists? Well, Genesis 1.1 says what? In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. And I would argue with you that those are four of the most important words in the entirety of the Bible. Because if you can't agree with those first four words, then you don't agree with anything else in the entire Bible. If you can't say, yes, in the beginning, God. In other words, that God was there in the beginning, that God had no beginning, that he was eternal. And that as that verse continues, he created everything, that he is the beginner of all things, then, then we're wasting our time here. But the Bible says, in the beginning, God. But, but how can we get there without going to the Bible, without going to Genesis 1.1? Well, we're going to start with an argument that's called this, the ontological argument. The ontological argument. The ontological argument is probably the most confusing argument that we're going to cover tonight, okay? So buckle up. I, I put it first because I figured you guys are most awake right now, okay? Maybe not after the pizza. Maybe I should have waited. Anyways, it was first put out there by a guy named Anselm. Anybody heard of Anselm before? He was the Archbishop of, of Canterbury in the 12th century. And he argued this. He said, God is the greatest conceivable being. Okay? So remember, we're not talking about necessarily the God of the Bible at this part, point. We're talking about God. We're talking about the concept of God, this supreme, unlimited, unconstrained, infinite being. Okay? Anselm said, this, this idea of God is the greatest conceivable being. This is true by definition. For if we could think of something greater than God, then that would be God. You follow? So the greatest thing, the greatest concept, the greatest power that you can conceive of is God. Okay? And then he says this. He says, so nothing greater than God can be thought of. It is greater to exist in reality than merely in the mind. Okay? So in other words, it's greater to, to think about a God that actually exists than to think of a God that doesn't exist. And if God is the highest thing that we can think of, then we have to say that we're thinking of the God who does exist. Again, I, I told you, I warned you, this is a little bit messy. But he goes on, he says, which is greater? The artist's idea of the painting or the painting itself as it really exists. It's the painting itself as it really truly exists, right? He says, similarly then, if God existed only in the mind, then something greater than him could be conceived, namely his existing not only in the mind, but in reality as well. But God is the greatest conceivable being. Hence, he must exist not only in the mind, but in reality as well. Therefore, God exists. Okay, how many of you guys have tired head trying to, to follow that? I did too, believe me. I mean, this, I, I spent the, the most amount of time on this section in, in prep time this week, okay? 
And, and this is one of the, the more confusing arguments for the existence of God, but I want to cover it because it's one of the ones that's, that's out there and has been out there for a long time, okay? We're talking since the 12th century AD that this argument has been out there. So I was, I was trying to figure out, okay, how can I, how can I encapsulate this in, in a more understandable way? And I actually found a, a website, the Center for Apologetics Research, and I don't know what the M is, C-A-R-M. Uh, they explained it and broke it down in a way that I think makes a little bit more sense. Uh, and here's how they broke it down. They said, number one, it's possible that God, not, again, remember to separate yourself right now from, from the God of, of the pages of this book. Yes, that's what we're talking about, but we're talking about from, from the world's perspective. It's possible that God exists, that this supreme being exists, okay? And then it goes to here. It says, okay, if this supreme being is possible, then he exists in some possible world. Okay, so there's a possible universe that's out there wherein God exists. But because he's God and he's unlimited and he's uninhibited and he's, he's the supreme and all-powerful being, if he exists in a possible world, then he exists in every possible world. Otherwise, he's limited. Otherwise, he has an imperfection. And the very concept of God means that he cannot have any sort of limitation or imperfection. So if you're willing to allow that God exists in some possible universe out there, then you have to allow that he exists in every possible universe. Otherwise, we're not talking about God anymore. We're talking about something that's limited. Then the argument progresses, and it says this. It says, if God exists in every possible world, then God exists in the actual world in which we reside. And then the argument continues. If God exists in the actual world, then God exists. Therefore, God exists. Again, th this is super heady philosophical stuff that we're talking about here. Some of you guys may, may track with this and be like, no, this totally resonates with me. If it does, great. That's why we're dealing with it because different people are wired in different ways. This argument is out there still for a reason because it is still effective for some people. And I'm not saying it's, it's defective. It's just hard to follow, all right? So I wouldn't necessarily take this straight back to your college campuses and lead off with the ontological argument unless you're just killing it, all right? But you guys know what the psalmist says in Psalm 14, verse 1? about what the fool says about God? The fool says in his heart, there is no God. There is no God. That's dealing with this concept right here. Look, we should all be able to conceive of the existence of God. To deny the existence completely is, is really to put yourself in the place of God. To say, I have all the knowledge of everything everywhere, and I can tell you right now for sure that there's no possible way that God exists. The fool denies in his heart, says in his heart that God does not exist. And so maybe you're thinking out there, well, what about unicorns? What if I conceive of a unicorn? Does that mean the unicorn exists? No. You know why? Because the unicorn doesn't have an attribute of necessary existence. God does. Okay? God does. In, in fact, another author says this, what does that prove? Maybe this conception of God is imaginary. The normal response to this part of the argument is that we create imaginary things all the time, from unicorns to tooth fairies to Jedi knights. But each of these things, while imaginary, is the combining of things that are real. A horse and a horn, a person with wings and unusual powers, a warrior with special abilities and unusual weapons, 
And moreover, neither a unicorn nor a tooth fairy nor a Jedi knight would possess the attribute of necessary existence. But again, for God to be ultimately the, the highest conceivable being, he has to exist. Otherwise, we can conceive of a being that does exist and he's greater than God and thus becomes God. Again, the fool says in his heart, I believe that the being who must necessarily exist does not exist. That's the ontological argument for the existence of God. But next came a guy named Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas, and he came along with the moral argument. That's not Thomas Aquinas, by the way. I don't know who that guy is, but hey, he's on the internet. Thomas Aquinas came along with the moral argument for the existence of God. And basically he said this, our sense of right and wrong, this is the 13th century is when this kind of first came to be. Our sense of right and wrong, what's good and what's evil, is due to the existence of an ultimately good God. See, Aquinas argued that our scale of goodness even points to the existence of a superlative and best standard of what is good. If I say that this is good, but this is better and this is best, that's because I have an ultimate understanding of what is the, the, the pure best. And I'm saying that this is the closest to what's purely and ultimately the best thing that there is. And Aquinas would say that standard points to the fact that we have that standard and that innate desire to say that this is good, this is better, this is best, or this is bad, this is worse, and this is worsest, uh, because there is a good God and we can hold up that objective standard to the objective standard giver. So that was Aquinas. Well, a guy named William Sorley, S-O-R-E-L-Y, took that argument and, and developed it further. And he made this argument. He said, objective moral values exist and they are universal. Objective moral values exist and they are universal. And he said, what's more, these objective moral values that exist aren't found in animals. And you say, well, my dog knows what's right from wrong because he knows that he's going to get in trouble when he pees on the floor. No, he knows he's going to get swat in the face when he pees on the floor. So survival instincts kick in and tell him don't pee on the floor. That's not morality. Morality is something that's inherently intrinsic encoded within human beings, hardwired there, as Sorley would argue, by our creator. And so because of that, because there are objective standards of right and wrong, there is the existence of a good, and God, good God who gave them to us. Here's the argument. In order there for, for there to be an objective moral standard, God must exist. An objective moral standard does exist. And, and that's the point where this is contentious. Do people agree with that? Will people agree with that? I'll circle back to that in a second. Therefore, God exists. Therefore, God exists. An objective moral standard does exist. How many in the room would agree with that? Okay, some of you would say no. Okay, and that's fair. Let me ask you, uh, is this good or is this bad, what's taking place in this picture? It's a woman helping an old lady across the street. Is that good? Yeah, well, no, you're wrong, because she's not helping her across the street. She's leading her into oncoming traffic that's coming the other direction, because the sidewalk goes this way, and she's taken off over there, but... You guys get the point. No, it's, it's good. This is a good thing to help somebody cross the street. It's a good thing. You can get a merit badge in Boy Scouts, I think. I don't know. I, I quit Boy Scouts because they didn't give me a pocket knife day one. So I was like, I'm, I'm out. I'm not doing it. Um, I played sports instead. So, so this is good, right? How about this guy right here? Is, is that guy good or is that guy bad? Bad. Okay. Yeah. Who is that guy, by the way? Okay, good. History classes are not failing you. 
He's bad. All right, let, let's take a couple more. Is, is torturing babies good or bad? Bad. Is rape good or bad? Bad. Is stealing good or bad? Bad. What about is showing kindness to somebody good or bad? Good. That's just a simple survey here, and I didn't have anybody standing up and pointing the finger at me going, you can't make these universal assertions of what's good and bad. And if you want to do that, I'm going to argue that it's untenable. I want to argue that, that ultimately you're going to break on that at some point. If I was to look at you and say, okay, so if I came over and, and murdered your entire family, you'd be totally fine with that. No, you wouldn't. The application of more morality changes from culture to culture. That's true. But there are underlying standards that are objective and are universal. If I get dropped into the middle of an Amazonian jungle tribe that's never seen anyone outside of their own tribe, and I, I walk up to the chief, chieftain's wife and I punch her in the face, you know what's not going to go well for me? The rest of my life, which will be, probably be pretty short at that point. Why? Because they would say that that's what? Not right. That's wrong. And we have to go back to that concept once we've demonstrated and shown that th there are universal moral standards. And we have to say, okay, so where do those come from? Because if God doesn't exist, then there's nothing to appeal to to apply any sort of moral standard anywhere. There has to be someone that's bigger than us, that transcends us, that has the authority to apply the universal moral standard by which we all inherently naturally live because we are created in the image of this standard bearer so that we step back and we say, okay, yes, that is what's right and that is what's wrong. It's wrong to punch somebody in the face most of the time. See, God and morality are intimately related the ability to perceive what's right or wrong is traceable back to being created in the image of God. In the image of God. Paul Coppin writes this. He says this, Intrinsically valuable thinking persons do not come from impersonal, non-conscious, unguided, valueless processes over time. A personal, self-aware, good God provides the natural and necessary context for the existence of valuable, rights-bearing, morally responsible human persons. It's like what Darwin said. He said, look, if, if, if we really truly are the product of evolution and we are the, our minds are the product of lower animals, then why should we trust our minds at all to conceive of anything, let alone what is right and what is wrong? But no, it, it points to that. In fact, attempts at explaining God or explaining morals without God will inevitably fail. Ethical systems without reference to God may contribute something to the overall discussion and to society, but they can't point to any reason for human value, rights, or moral obligations. Morals as a result of evolution provides no obligation to morality or to human dignity. In fact, you guys know the name Jeffrey Dahmer. He was a, a mass murderer, or a serial killer. He said this. He said, if it all happens naturalistically, what's the need for a God? Can't I set my own rules? Who owns me? I own myself. That's the logical conclusion. And so for, for somebody who says, 
there are no universal morals and God doesn't exist, Jeffrey Dahmer is the natural conclusion. Adolf Hitler is the natural conclusion. It makes the most sense based on their worldview. But the rest of us would say that doesn't make any sense at all. Why? Because there's something inherent within us that says it's wrong. Where did that come from? That didn't come from evolution. That was put in you by the creator, by God. And so again, the moral argument says that that there is an objective moral standard. Therefore, there's an objective moral standard giver. There's a God who set the standard for what is right and what is wrong. So the ontological argument for the existence of God. Then we had the moral argument for the existence of God. You guys tracking with me okay tonight? Yes? North, south, east, west? I'm going to remain motionless and hope he doesn't notice. That's the majority of you in the room. So good. Things are, are going well. So that's two out of our three arguments. The last one here is this one, the teleological argument. The teleological argument. The teleological argument, and it's got that picture up there of, of the watch, inside of a watch, the intricacies, the details of that. The teleological argument says this, every design had a designer. Every design had a designer. Then it says, the universe has a highly complex design. We'll touch on that here in, in just a minute. The universe has a highly complex design. And then it says, therefore, the universe had an intelligent designer. God. Every design had a designer. The universe has a highly complex design. Therefore, the universe had an intelligent designer. I was talking with my son, Joshua, today about this in my office as we were in there during the 11 o'clock service, just waiting together. And, and uh, as was talking to him about this argument, and I said, Joshua, it's, it's like this painting. Who is that? Mona Lisa. Although we don't know, I guess, right? Because we don't really know who that lady is. We just know what Leonardo decided to call her. But the Mona Lisa, any of you ever been and, and seen the Mona Lisa before? Okay, a few of you. I haven't, so consider my hand down. Um, but you stand before the Mona Lisa, or you stand before uh, an amazing work of art. Michelangelo's David, I've, I've been to see that. This one was more appropriate to put up on the screen. Um, but you, you stand before that, and you stand there in awe, and, and you think about the fact that this was, was painted by somebody, right? Nobody goes to see the Mona Lisa and concludes that Leonardo da Vinci had this canvas laid out in his garage on the floor, and that there was an earthquake and all of his paints and brushes were knocked over in the course of the earthquake and moved around in just the right way. And all of a sudden, when he came back out into his garage, uh, he found this painting there on the floor created by the earthquake and claimed credit for it. Has anybody heard that theory before? No, right? It's absurd, isn't it? Or it's like this, I, and this is how I explained it to, to my son. I said, it's, it's like your brother who's two years old. Uh, <laughs> He's terror. Love him to death. But I said it'd be like giving him three crayons in each hand and a canvas and saying, okay, Luke, I'm going to blindfold you. I'm going to feed you a Red Bull. <laughs> and then I'm going to turn you loose on this canvas with these crayons in your hand. 
blindfolded two-year-old on Red Bull doing this, is that ever going to produce this? No, right? I don't care how many billions of years you give my two-year-old, he's not going to produce this hopped up on Red Bull. Ever. Okay? Why? Because this takes planning. It takes precision. It takes an intelligent designer to sit down and say, you know what? Here's this lady. I'm going to sit her down. She's going to smirk like Pastor Lucas smirks. And then, <laughs> and then I'm, I'm going to paint her. Okay? And it, it, it takes somebody with, with intentionality behind that. We would say the same thing about Michelangelo's David, wouldn't we? In fact, you guys know that the Bible presents the argument for the, the teleological argument for the existence of God? Did you guys know that, that that's scriptural, that this isn't just scientific or logical? Psalm chapter 19, go ahead and open your Bibles there. Psalm chapter 19. This is one of my favorite passages of scripture. Psalm chapter 19. It's also up on the screen, but I first wanted you to get it in your Bibles before you just copped out and looked at the screen. Psalm chapter 19 says this, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day, day after day, pours out speech, and night after night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice, the, what voice? The voice of creation, the voice of the heavens, the voice of the skies, goes out through all of the earth. Their words to the end of the world. In them, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving its chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. There is nothing hidden from its heat. So King David is using the teleological argument to demonstrate that God exists. He's looking to the skies, looking to the heavens, looking to the glory on display and saying, yes, God exists. You know, I remember being in seminary in Dallas and driving back from a class one day, and I remember being at a, a moment not a crisis moment, but just a moment of going, okay, God, I've grown up in a Christian home. I've grown up attending Christian private school when I was younger. I went to a Christian college and now here I am and I'm going to seminary and I just, I want to be able to point to something else to say that you're, you're there, that you exist. And as I was driving up the Dallas North Tollway on my way home, I, I looked out and I, I saw that the skies, and if you haven't seen the sky in Texas, you haven't seen the sky because we don't have trees there, okay? They just don't exist there. Um, and so the sky goes on for miles. And I remember looking up and just seeing it stretched out and seeing the cloud formations and seeing the beauty there and going, okay, God, I get it. I get it. And I'm still that way. I drive my wife nuts how many times I'm like, look up at the sky, look at the stars, look at the moon. Isn't it amazing right now? That was what David was doing there. He was looking at the design on display from the God of the universe and saying, okay, God, I, I, I see you. I see you. 
Paul argues for it as well. It's not just David. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them. Why? Because God has shown it to them. Verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Paul's using the teleological argument in Romans chapter 1 to say that all of mankind is without excuse before God because you can look at this created world and see evidence of God. There are approximately 100 billion stars in our galaxy. And the average space between those stars is 30 trillion miles. Which means if you were to get into one of our spaceships that travels at about 17,000 miles per hour, it's five miles per second. If you were to get in one of our spaceships and travel at 17,000 miles per hour, it would take you over 200,000 years to get from one star to the next. And there's over 100 billion stars in our universe. We live in a vast universe. That's an understatement. But there is an order and there's a complexity and there's a beauty and there's a precision and there's a design and there's a plan and a purpose to this universe that points to an intelligent, creative, personal God. In 1973, a physicist from Cambridge named Brandon Carter coined the term the anthropic principle. Anthropic, from the Greek word anthropos, which means man. Anthropology, the study of man. The anthropic principle. And the anthropic principle basically came to represent all the fine-tuned details in this universe that add up to the sustainability of life on earth earth. He concluded this, all the seemingly arbitrary and unrelated constants in physics have one strange thing in common. They are precisely the values you need if you want to have a universe capable of producing life. The anthropic principle basically says this universe, not just earth, but the entire universe is so fine-tuned for life to exist that you have to take notice of it. You have to take notice of it. What are some of the things that feed the anthropic principle? Number one, the, the tilt of the earth on its axis. It's at 23 degrees. 23 degrees. If it were off by mere degrees in either direction, it would render life on earth impossible, either being too hot or too cold. The percentage of oxygen in our atmosphere is 21%. 21%. Any less than that, by any minor variable, and, and it would render not enough oxygen in our atmosphere and we would all suffocate. Any more than that, and we would live in a world full of spontaneous combustions. 
ever added oxygen to fire? That doesn't go well, does it? How about the water vapor levels in our atmosphere? The water vapor levels in our atmosphere are just right to maintain just the precise, correct greenhouse effect. If the levels increased, we would cook. If they decreased, we would freeze. This next one's my favorite. The gravity field of Jupiter. God's just having fun at this point, okay? You say, what in the world does the gravity field of Jupiter have to do with life on Earth? Well, do you know what the gravity field of Jupiter does for our planet? Pulls in meteors. Yeah, meteorites, asteroids, everything else, all the space, junk, and debris that otherwise would be on a collision course for Earth, Jupiter takes the hit for us. So you can say, hey, thanks, Jupiter. I appreciate that. Good looking out. It's like a cosmic vacuum cleaner, right? And if it weren't there, and if the, the gravity force, not just if the gravity force didn't exist, but if it wasn't so finely tuned that it would absorb those things, then we're in trouble. Like Armageddon, Deep Space Nine, all, all the like scary space movies with asteroids killing everything, dinosaurs, everybody's gone, okay? It's bad if Jupiter's not there. How about our gravity? Our gravity. So, so picture this for a second. If you took the entire universe, okay? So I just said 100 billion stars, 30 trillion miles in between them. If, if you started at, at point one, and I, don't ask me where that is, I don't know, but, but point one, and you stretched a, a ruler out across the entire known universe, okay? And you're like, that, that ruler doesn't exist. Okay, fine, bear with me. It, it does exist for this illustration, okay? You stretched it out across the entire known universe, and at the very beginning of that ruler, you had our force of gravity here on Earth, okay? And then at the very end of that ruler, you had the nuclear force, which is 10,000 billion, 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 billion times stronger. You're like, that number's not real. It is. I read it in multiple textbooks this week, and it wasn't like, I read it one time, I was like, that number's not real, and then somebody else wrote it, 10, I was like, fine, that number's real. 10,000 billion, 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 billion times stronger between the beginning of the ruler and the end of the ruler, okay? If you took the force of gravity at the beginning of the ruler, which is what we all enjoy right now that keeps us in our seats on earth and doesn't let us float out. But if you move that one inch closer to the nuclear force on this ruler, to use this metaphor, if you just moved it one inch, one inch, it would increase the force of gravity by a billion times its current force on earth. You say, well, why does that matter? That means that gravity is fine-tuned down to one part in 10,000 billion, 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 billion. One part in 10,000 billion, 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 billion. That's how precise our gravitational force had to be here on earth. To miss it by, by just one part destroys us. Beyond that, there's something called the cosmological constant. It's the density, energy density in space. If this constant was too large and positive, the energy, the, 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 the matter in, in space would, would just pull apart. It wouldn't be able to hold together. If it was too large and negative, the universe would collapse back in on itself. But as it is, this constant is incredibly small and allows for just the right precise amount of expansion. How precise is that rate of expansion? That precise. One in one in 53 zeros. You're like, are there 53 zeros? Yes, I hit the button 53 times. 
today. That's one in 100 million, billion, 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 billion. That's how precise that number had to be in order to allow for Einstein's theory of relativity and everything else that we talked about last week to be happening the way it's happening right now, to sustain life on Earth. Combine those last two factors, okay? Gravity and the cosmological constant there. For those two things to be true, the chances of that happening... One in 100 million, trillion, 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 trillion. That's the equivalent of finding one singular atom in the entire universe. Your chances of picking one atom out in the entire universe. And you say, okay, but Pastor PJ, that's why there's, you know, evolutionists allow for hundreds of billions of years so that there's plenty of time to figure that out. Okay, but, but this next section produces another problem, and that is the the problem of irreducible complexity. Irreducible complexity. Let let me just give you guys some, uh, a breather for a second. I I don't expect you to take all this stuff back with you to the classroom, okay? I I just want you to be confident to be able to say, hey, look, there's a design to this universe, and and if you want to sit down and and talk through this, we can, we'll do that. But I, I want you guys to be able to understand what the psalmist was alluding to and what Paul was, was talking about, that, that God has actually borne out through scientific observation now. But let's just think about life for a second. Life. Irreducible complexity is this. It's a system or device that if it has a number of different components that all work together to accomplish the task of the system, and if you were to remove one of the components, the system would no longer function. An irreducibly complex system is highly unlikely to be built piece by piece. I would say it's impossible through the Darwinian process because the system has to be fully present in order to function. In other words, you can't take away any part of it and still have a working organism there. And when it comes down to to life, we find irreducibly complex organisms within the human body. But just to illustrate this, what is that? It's a mousetrap, right? If you take away any parts of that mousetrap, it doesn't work, okay? The mouse will be able to defeat it. If you take away the hammer, if you take away the spring, if you take away the the thing that that holds the spring down, if you take away the wooden board, again, it, it doesn't work. You have to have all the components together, functioning together corporately at the same time in order for that thing to work. Does that make sense? You remove one, it's dead. It doesn't, it doesn't work. The mouse lives to, to live another day. I like dead mice, not li- live ones. Darwin said this. He said, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed, which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, a la evolution, my theory would absolutely break down. Well, <laughs> guess what, Mr. Darwin? I hate to break it to you, but do you guys know what that is? It's a cell. Okay? You're like, I thought I was coming to church, not biology class. I hate biology class. I did too, so don't worry about it. Just track with me for a minute. Well, guys, not only do all the parts have to be there for the cell to function, but they all have to be constructed in the right way. You can't remove a part of the cell and still have the cell function the way it was designed to function. That's a problem for evolution. Okay? Because it, it has to be there exactly the way it is. Michael Behe, who's a biochemist at Lehigh University professor, He says, evolution can't produce an irreducibly complex biological machine suddenly all at once because it's much too complicated. But not only are there cells, there's also these things. And that's gross. Is anybody else grossed out by that? I mean, it's not like quite sneeze level, but that's 
those things are in your body right now by like the billions and trillions. I don't know how many cells we have in our body, but the, they, ha- they all have those. Those are called cilia, okay? They're these little hairs that are on the surface of cells. Like, why does this matter? Because those cilia are another example of irreducible complexity. So not only the whole cell, but also the individual parts of the cells. These cilia, I'm not even going to get into the, the whole description. You can come up and read it afterwards if you want to, if you understand these things. But there's like microtubules and flexible thin rods and, and proteins and linkers and dynine and, and all these things all have to work together the same way in order for the, the, the cilia to do the job that God designed them to do. And if you take away one part of that, it, it all breaks down and life ends. Yeah, I mean, this guy says this. If it weren't for the linkers, everything would fall apart. Of course it would. When the sliding motion began, right? And if it weren't for the motor protein, it wouldn't move at all. And if it weren't for the rods, there would be nothing to move. So like the mousetrap, the cilium, the cilia is re- irreducibly complex. Another example of it is this. That's, that thing's weird looking too. You guys have those inside you too. I don't know how many, but you've got a lot of those too. That's the bacterial flagellum. The flagellum is the, the tail on the end of the bacteria. Did you know that that thing can spin up to 10,000 RPM? 10,000 rotations per minute. One of the most advanced sports cars, the Honda S2000, tops out at 9,000 rotations per minute. Not only can that thing spin at 10,000 per minute, but it can stop its rotation within a quarter turn. So from 10,000 rotations per minute, dead stop in a quarter turn. And then it can immediately start spinning the other direction at 10,000 rotations per minute. That's insane. Do you know how big that thing is? One ten thousandth of an inch. Guys, it's, it's, it goes back to, I look at the, the clouds and see God. Not, I don't, I don't see God like I see dead people. But I look at the clouds and I, I, I don't see dead people either. That just came out wrong. Yeah, it's, it's over now. It's just over. I look at the clouds and I see evidence. I see the beauty. I see the display. I go to the ocean. I, I see it there. Some people look under microscopes at this stuff and are like, hey, wow, that's amazing. This is irreducible complexity. And, and this is impossible except if there's a, a, a creator, except if there's a God. Isaac Newton looked at the planets and he said this most beautiful system of the sun and planets and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. And I want to end our time tonight with, with this thought. The most intricate painting, like we looked at the Mona Lisa, or building or piece of jewelry, is without question attributed to an intelligent designer. No one assumes that natural forces produce the U.S. Capitol building. No one assumes that simple random erosion produced the faces on Mount Rushmore or that wind could create an Apple Watch. These are all things that we automatically at once attribute to an intelligent designer, and yet we so often refuse to do that with God's creation, which is vastly more complex than any of those things. And the chances of random happenstance producing any of those is far, far, far less than erosion carving out my face on the side of Saddleback Mountain, okay? That's not going to happen. Exactly, it's not. In fact, 
one of the most well-known atheists, Richard Dawkins even said this. He said, the odds against a universe that has produced life like ours is immense. And before that, Stephen Hawking. Nope, that's back with the bacteria, bacteria flagellum. Sorry, Stephen Hawking is the one that said that, not Richard Dawkins. The odds against a universe that has produced life like ours are immense. Astrophysicist Hugh Ross calculated the likelihood that such precision could arise by chance as 1 in 10 to the 138th power. It's 10 with 138 zeros behind it. I wasn't going to sit there and hit that button 138 times. I love you guys, but not that much. To put that in perspective, there are only 10 to the 70th power atoms believed to exist in the entire universe. In other words, there's a 0% chance that chance could have produced such order and design. It had to be God. So these three arguments, the ontological argument, the moral argument, and the teleological argument, or the argument for design, from design, what are they good for? Well, they're good to, to lead people down the path towards, again, understanding this idea that, that God exists, right? We've been moving this direction, but if I walk away convincing somebody that God exists, have I done anything for their eternal state? No, right? Again, apologetics is not about winning arguments. It's about winning souls. And so these are, again, meant to be tools in your belt so that you can use them to get to the point where you can share the gospel with somebody. And I hope that you are sharing the gospel with people. I hope that you are sharing the gospel. Don't assume they know. Don't assume people understand. Don't assume people know about Jesus, about their need for Christ. I, I repeat again, that's why we're doing this entire series. I don't care if this isn't your cup of tea. I don't care if you like this series or not personally. I want you to take this series and put it into work with the people in your life that are going to hell. And if you say, I don't know anybody in my life that's going to hell, broaden your circles. This is the only legitimate reason why Christ doesn't kill us and call us home as soon as we come to faith in him. The only legitimate reason, the only thing that you can do better on this side of eternity than in glory with God is share the gospel with people. It's the most important thing that you can do with your life, bar none. The degree that you're pursuing, the, the, the spouse that you hope to have, the job that you've got your eyes set on, the house that you want to one day own, the whatever, it's going to be gone. And the only thing that, that, that we can do now that, that we can't do better there is to tell people about Christ. So go and do it. Please go and do it. I don't care if you can rattle off the ontological argument or the teleological argument or the moral argument. I, I, I don't. I just want you to, to go out there and talk with people. Get them down to the, the questions of, hey, have you ever thought about whether or not God exists? Start the conversations. We can't sit back and wait. 
every single person that you interact with, think about this, every single person that you interact with, God has sovereignly placed in your life. And he's given you the message of salvation. And said, go to them with it. What are you going to do with it? That's the question. Let's pray. God, I'm so thankful that you are a God of order and precision and design. We can look at this world and say, yes, you, <laughs> there's no other explanation except for your existence. That God exists. Lord, I thank you that you are a God who has given us a moral standard by which we can look at, at things pretty objectively and say, yes, this is wrong, this is right. And we can say, the only reason that we can believe those things is because, God, you exist. Lord, we are so thankful for that. I pray that we would begin to have those conversations with people, that we would overcome whatever the obstacles are, whether it's fear of man or fear of not having the right answers or whatever it may be. God, I pray that you would help us to, to get beyond that, get past that, and just get to, to opening our mouth with the gospel. Lord, I pray specifically for everyone in this room that you would bring across our path an unavoidable opportunity to share the gospel of Christ this week. And that we wouldn't shy away, but that we would lean into it, that we would say, okay, let's do this. God, we are grateful to you for everything that you've done for us. We pray that you'd be pleased with the rest of our evening tonight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.